This is section 67 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 67, Daily Hawaiian Herald, September-October, 1866. Daily Hawaiian Herald, September 4, 1866. Sam Clements, Mark Twain, which is merely his nom de plume, has been by us advised to correspond with the herald in his vivid and gossiping style we shall expect letters from him soon and as our people are aware of the vim and pungency of his pen we look forward to an interesting addition of latest news to our columns daily hawaiian herald september fifth eighteen sixty six mark twain on photographs we have just been reading over sam clemens sick last letter and in the flowing instance he blunders on so much truth that we have a notion to countermand our order for him to communicate with us speaking of photographs he says they are all false and feelingly remarks no photograph ever was good yet of anybody hunger and thirst and utter wretchedness overtake the outlaw who invented it it transforms into desperadoes the meekest of men depicts sinless innocence upon the pictured faces of ruffians, gives the wise man the stupid leer of a fool, and a fool an expression of more than earthly wisdom. If a man tries to look serious when he sits for his picture, the photograph makes him look as solemn as an owl. If he smiles, the photograph smirks repulsively. If he tries to look pleasant, the photograph looks silly. If he makes the fatal mistake of attempting to seem pensive, the camera will surely write him down as an ass. The sun never looks through the photographic instrument that it does not print a lie. The piece of glass it prints it on is well named a negative, a contradiction, a misrepresentation, a falsehood. I speak feelingly of this matter, because by turns the instrument has represented me to be a lunatic, a Solomon, a missionary, a burglar, and an abject idiot and I am neither. Daily Hawaiian Herald, September 14, 1866. Mark Twain on Captain Cook. It seems that Mark Twain, while here, not only borrowed Jarvie's history of Captain Cook and carried it off, v. et armis, but that he also appropriated from its pages the following synopsis of the event of the navigator's death. Plain, unvarnished history takes the romance out of Captain Cook's assassination, and renders a deliberate verdict of justifiable homicide. Wherever he went among the islands he was cordially received and welcomed by the inhabitants, and his ships lavishly supplied with all manner of food. He returned these kindnesses with insult and ill-treatment. When he landed at Kealakekua Bay, a multitude of natives, variously estimated at some ten to fifteen thousand, flocked about him and conducted him to the principal temple with more than royal honors, with honors suited to their chiefest god, for which they took him to be. They called him Lono, a deity who had resided at that place in a former age, but who had gone away and had ever since been anxiously expected back by the people. When Cook approached the awe-stricken people they prostrated themselves and hid their faces. His coming was announced in a loud voice by heralds, and those who had not time to get out of the way after prostrating themselves were trampled underfoot by the following throngs. Arrived at the temple, he was taken into the most sacred part 
and placed before the principal idol. These distinguished civilities were never offered by the islanders to mere human beings. Cook was mistaken for their absent god. He accepted the situation and helped the natives to deceive themselves. His conduct might have been wrong in a moral point of view, but his policy was good in conniving at the deception, and proved itself so. The belief that he was a god saved him a good while from being killed, protected him thoroughly and completely, until, in an unlucky moment, it was discovered that he was only a man. His death followed instantly. Jarvis, from whose history, principally, I am condensing this narrative, thinks his destruction was a direct consequence of his dishonest personation of the god, but unhappily for the argument, the historian proves over and over again that the false Lono was spared time and time again when simple Captain Cook of the Royal Navy would have been destroyed with small ceremony. The idolatrous worship of Captain Cook, as above described, was repeated at every heathen temple he visited. Wherever he went, the terrified common people, not being accustomed to seeing gods marching around of their own free will and accord, and without human assistance, fled at his approach, or fell down and worshipped him. A priest attended him, and regulated the religious ceremonies which constantly took place in his honor. Offerings, chants, and addresses met him at every point. For a brief period he moved among them an earthly god, observed, feared, and worshipped. During all this time the whole island was heavily taxed, to supply the wants of the ships, or contributed to the gratification of their officers and crews, and, as was customary in such cases, no returns expected. The natives rendered much assistance in filling the ships and preparing them for their voyages. At one time the king of the island laid a taboo upon his people, confining them to their houses for several days. This interrupted the daily supply of vegetables to the ships. Several natives tried to violate the taboo, under threats made by Cook's sailors, but were prevented by a chief, who, for the enforcing the laws of his country, had a musket fired over his head from one of the ships. This is related in Cook's voyages. The taboo was soon removed, and the Englishmen were favored with the boundless hospitality of the natives as before, except that the Kanaka women were interdicted from visiting the ships. Formerly, with extravagant hospitality, the people had sent their wives and daughters on board themselves. The officers and sailors went freely about the island and were everywhere laden with presents. The king visited Cook in royal state and gave him a large number of exceedingly costly and valuable presents, in return for which the resurrected Lono presented his majesty a white linen suit and a dagger, an instance of illiberality in every way discreditable to a god. On the 2nd of February, at the desire of his commander, Captain King proposed to the priests to purchase for fuel the railing which surrounded the top of the temple of Lono. In this Cook manifested as little respect for the religion in the mythology of which he figured so conspicuously as scruples in violating the divine precepts of his own. Indeed, Throughout his voyages, a spirit, regardless of the rights and feelings of others, when his own were interested, is manifested, especially in his last cruise, which is a blot upon his memory. 
cook desecrated the holy places of the temple by storing supplies for his ships in them and by using the level grounds within the enclosure as a general workshop for repairing his sails etc ground which was so sacred that no common native dared to set foot upon it ledyard a yankee sailor who was with cook and whose journal is considered the most just and reliable account of this eventful period of the voyage says two iron hatchets were offered for the temple railing and when the sacrilegious proposition was refused by the priests with horror and indignation it was torn down by order of captain cook and taken to the boats by the sailors and the images which surmounted it removed and destroyed in the presence of the priests and chiefs the abused and insulted natives grew desperate under the indignities that were constantly being heaped upon them by men whose wants they had unselfishly relieved at the expense of their own impoverishment and angered by some fresh baseness they stoned a party of sailors and drove them to their boats from this time onward cook and the natives were alternately friendly and hostile until sunday the fourteenth whose setting sun saw the circumnavigator a corpse daily hawaiian herald october sixth eighteen sixty six mark twain on etiquette etiquette varies according to one's surroundings in the mining camps of california when a friend tenders you a mile or invites you to take a blister vulgarly called a drink it is etiquette to say here's hoping your dirt'll pan out gay in washoe when you are requested to put in a blast or invited to take your regular poison etiquette admonishes you to touch glasses and say here's hoping you'll strike it rich in the lower level and in honolulu when your friend the whaler asks you to take a fid with him it is simple etiquette to say here's eighteen hundred barrels old salt but drink hearty is universal that is the orthodox reply the world over in san francisco sometimes if you offend a man he proposes to take his coat off and inquires are you on it if you are you take your coat off too in virginia city in former times the insulted party if he were a true man would lay his hand gently on his six-shooter and say are you healed but in honolulu if smith offends jones jones asks with a rising inflection on the last word which is excessively aggravating how much do you weigh sixteen hundred and forty pound and you two ton to a dot at a quarter past eleven this forenoon peel yourself you're my blubber mark twain daily hawaiian herald october seventeenth eighteen sixty six an epistle from mark twain san francisco september twenty fourth the queen's arrival queen emma and sweet arrived at noon to-day in the p m s s sacramento and was received by mr hitchcock the hawaiian consul and escorted to the occidental hotel where a suite of neatly decorated apartments had been got ready for her the u s revenue cutter shubrick went to sea and received the guest with a royal salute of twenty-one guns and then escorted her ship to the city fort point saluted again and the colors of the other fortifications and on board the u s war steamer vanderbilt were dipped as the sacramento passed the commander of the fleet in these waters had been instructed to tender the vanderbilt to queen emma to convey her to the islands when she shall have concluded her visit the city government worried for days together over a public reception program 
and then, when the time arrived to carry it into execution, failed. But a crowd of gaping American kings besieged the Occidental Hotel, and peered anxiously into every carriage that arrived, and criticized every woman who emerged from it. Not a lady arrived from the steamer, but was taken for Queen Emma, and her personal appearance subjected to remarks, some of them flattering, and some otherwise. C. W. Brooks and Jerome Leland, and other gentlemen, are out of pocket and a day's time in making preparations all day yesterday for a state reception, but at midnight no steamer had been telegraphed, and so they sent their sumptuous carriages and spirited four-horse teams back to the stables and went to bed in sorrow and disappointment. The Queen was expected at the public tables at dinner tonight, in the simplicity of the American heart, and every lady was covertly scrutinized as she entered the dining-room, but to no purpose. Her Majesty dined in her rooms, with her suite and the consul. She will be serenaded to-night, however, and to-morrow a numerous cortege will march in procession before the hotel, and give her three cheers and a tiger, and then, no doubt, the public will be on hand to see her if she shows herself. Alphabet Warren I believe I do not know of anything further to write about that will interest you, except that in Sacramento a few days ago, when I went to report the horse fair of the State Agricultural Society, I found Mr. John Quincy Adam Warren, late of the islands, and he was well-dressed and looked happy. He had on exhibition a hundred thousand varieties of lava, and worms, and vegetables, and other valuables which he had collected in Hawaii Nei. I smiled on him, but he wouldn't smile back again. I did not mind it a great deal, though I could not help thinking it was ungrateful in him. I made him famous in California with a paragraph which I need not have written unless I wanted to, and this is the thanks I get for it. He would never have been heard of if I had let him alone, and now he declines to smile. I will never do a man a kindness again. Malicious Charles L. Richards of Honolulu sails to-morrow for the islands with a fast team he purchased here. The steamer Colorado is undergoing the alterations necessary to fit her for the China Mail Company's service, and will sail about the 1st of January with about all the cabin passengers she can carry. She will touch at Honolulu, as I now understand. I expect to go out in her, in order to see that everything is done right. Commodore Watson is to command her, I believe. I am going chiefly, however, to eat the editor of the commercial advertiser for saying I do not write the truth about the Hawaiian Islands, and for exposing my highway robbery and carrying off Father Damien's book, History of the Islands. I shall go there mighty hungry. Mr. Whitney is jealous of me because I speak the truth so naturally, and he can't do it without taking the lockjaw. But he ought not to be jealous. He ought not to try to ruin me, because I am more virtuous than he is. I cannot help it. It is my nature to be reliable, just as it is his to be shaky on matters of fact. We cannot alter these natures. Us leopards cannot change our spots. Therefore, why growl? Why go and try to make trouble? If he cannot tell when I am writing seriously and when I am burlesquing, if he sits down solemnly and takes one of my palpable burlesques and reads it with a funereal aspect and swallows it as petrified truth, how am I going to help it? I cannot give him the keen perception that nature denied him, now can I? 
Whitney knows that. Whitney knows he has done me many a kindness, and that I do not forget it, and am still grateful, and he knows that if I could scour him up so that he could tell a broad burlesque from a plain statement of fact, I would get up in the night and walk any distance to do it. You know that, Whitney. But I am coming down there mighty hungry, most uncommonly hungry, Whitney. Mark Twain Daily Hawaiian Herald, October 23, 1866 Mark Twain's Lecture This lecture, delivered in San Francisco on the night of October 2nd, appears by the comments of the press of that city to have been a success. The bulletin says, The Academy of Music was stuffed, to use an expression of the lecturer, to repletion last night on the occasion of the delivery of Mark Twain's, Samuel Clemens, sick, lecture on the Sandwich Islands. It is perhaps fortunate that the King of Hawaii did not arrive in time to attend, for unless he had gone early he must have been turned away, as many others were, who could not gain admittance. Nearly every seat in the house had been engaged beforehand, and those who came last had to put up with the best they could get, while many were obliged to stand up all the evening. The appearance of the lecturer was the signal for applause, and, from the time he closed, the greatest good feeling existed. He commenced by apologizing for the absence of an orchestra. He wasn't used to getting up operas of this sort. He had engaged a musician to come and play, but the trombone player insisted upon having some other musicians to help him. He had hired the man to work, and wouldn't stand any such nonsense, and so discharged him on the spot. The lecturer then proceeded with his subject, and delivered one of the most interesting and amusing lectures ever given in this city. It was replete with information of that character which is seldom got from books, describing all those minor traits of character, customs, and habits, which are only noted by a close observer, and yet the kind of information which gives the most correct idea of the people described. Their virtues were set forth generously, while their vices were touched off in a humorous style, which kept the audience in a constant state of merriment. From the lecturer's reputation as a humorist, the audience were unprepared for the eloquent description of the volcano of Kilauea, a really magnificent piece of word-painting, their appreciation of which was shown by long and continued applause. Important facts concerning the resources of the islands were given, interspersed with pointed anecdotes and side-splitting jokes. Their history, traditions, religion, politics, aristocracy, royalty, manners and customs were all described in brief and in the humorous vein peculiar to the speaker. It would be impossible to do justice to the lecture in a synopsis, and, as it will probably be repeated, we shall not attempt it. The lecturer kept his audience constantly interested and amused for an hour and a half, and the lecture was unanimously pronounced a brilliant success. After its close, and the audience had risen to leave, he was called out again, and in his funny style apologized for the infliction, giving as an excuse that he was about writing a book on the Sandwich Islands, and needed funds for its publication. We are pleased that Mark Twain is using the data he gathered here for the purpose of advancing the interests of these islands, although Mr. Sam Clemens, sick, has been accused of unfairness, we think that his forthcoming work will show that he has been an industrious collator of facts. 
End of section 67.